Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> You'll have to excuse the, the glitter on the ground and all these extra seats. We've just had 100, 110 children as part of a Christmas pageant. Um, so it's very exuberant in here uh, less than an hour ago, and yet uh, we're going to shift gears back into Advent because, you know, Christmas and Advent are, are quite different in the Christmas year, and Advent is a time of solemnity and waiting and, and, and impending judgment, in fact. Uh, so uh, ignore the, um, yeah, the little streamers and things that I can see from up here. Um, it just, it's, a, it's the remnants of joy. Uh, because the question at the heart of today's passage, the gospel passage that we just heard read, is a arresting one. It's, the question is this. It's from John the Baptist. He asks, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? John the Baptist is in prison, and these are words that he is asking. He's sending one of his followers to go ask Jesus directly. Now, this is not um, uh, sort of a, a casual question. These are words of, of disappointment. They're words of a dashed hopes and a shaken faith. Words of doubt and even regret. There's pain in that question. You see, John thought he was preparing the way for the Lord and he thought that that meant that he would not end up in prison about to be executed. He did not, uh, this is clearly baffling to him, such that he wants to go back and question first principles, as they say in business. He thought God would be one thing, and to the extent that God has shown up, God is something altogether different. So this is a man who thinks he's failed. The judgment he was foretelling didn't arrive. His life, his witness, all that he risked his life for was for naught. That is contained in this question. Are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? Now, let's bring it down back to the 21st century. Uh, can you relate to that note of disappointment? I mean, we're coming up on the end of a year. Is there something that you would, had hoped would happen this year that didn't? Was there some plan that you put into action, some decision you'd made that you, you really had hoped would turn out differently? Maybe you thought the pandemic is over and finally life is going to get easy again. But then it didn't. Or it got hard in a different way, in a new way. Maybe you thought your new job was going to change things, but it turned out to have its own challenges. Maybe there was a relationship that, in which you had invested quite a bit of hope and it didn't pan out. There was an illness that you'd been told was going to improve and it didn't. A child who finally seemed like they were on the right path. And then here you are in December back to square one again. I don't know what it is for you, but I know that to live life and to get older is to accrue disappointments. And to act like that's not happening is an exercise in denial. Now, I can say this because I grew up the fan of the New York Jets. 
also the New York Mets. So I grew up outside New York amongst a, a group of people that were rooting for the winners, the, the Yankees and the Giants. And some reason by DNA, I don't know how it happened, but I was told that I was a Jets fan and a Mets fan. Now that means I'm a long-suffering person. It's my in-laws live in Washington and they've been rooting for the Redskins, now the Commanders, for years. And it's, it's to be a glutton for disappointment is to root for one of these teams. And that's what, that's what it means to be a Jets fan. Now, there was a joke that was uh, in, in, in the show, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, where a, a man uh, ends his life because the Jets lost again and the ep his epitaph said he, couldn't, he just couldn't take any more disappointment. Now hopefully you can't relate to that, it's extreme, it's supposed to be funny, but uh, disappointment it hurts, it's painful. Um, and sometimes, you know, even when things do work out, even when something we've hoped in happens, uh, we can still feel disappointed, can we not? You ever heard of the arrival fallacy? There was, it was it made, uh, social scientists were talking about it a few years ago, it's not really, um, a, a particularly novel bias. It simply describes the human condition. It, the illusion that once we make it, once we attain our goal or reach our destination, we will then reach lasting happiness. And of course, the universal testimony of the human experience is that we may know in our minds that certain landmarks, like a promotion, or a new house, or a new, a new marriage, uh, may, may, may seldom deliver what we want them to, we still think the next thing is going to do it. That's the arrival fallacy, that even the things we do attain end up somehow disappointing us. Now I say this not because it's fun to talk about disappointment, but precisely the opposite. Disappointment is painful. It was painful to John the Baptist. It's painful to me. It's so painful that many of us live our lives in fear of disappointment. We don't want to be disappointed, and more importantly, we don't want to be a disappointment. I've watched far too many people, I've seen myself contort into various weird positions in order to avoid disappointing a spouse, or a child, or a boss, or simply society in general, or a parent. We run so fast, so far, in order to avoid disappointment. So, in Advent, how do Christians answer disappointment? Well, how does Jesus answer John? I want to suggest that he answers him in two ways. First, he does not condemn the question. He doesn't say, how dare you? I'm out here doing it. Can't you see? He does that with other people, by the way. <laughs> Ye of little faith. <laughs> No, instead he tells him, he quotes to him Isaiah, and he, he says, the proof is in the pudding, buddy, because the blind receive their sight. Go tell him this. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news brought to them. Now, you'll notice, although he quotes Isaiah, and more than just the passage we heard read, he leaves out one key bit of prophecy. What is that? That whole thing about the captives being set free. The thing that you'd think would be the most interesting to a person in jail. 
wait a second, you left something out, Jesus. This is not an arbitrary omission. You see, he leaves it out to highlight something important that was missing from John's understanding of God. John had adopted, like you and I adopt, what we would call a theology of glory, which is an understanding that God works primarily through improvement, success, triumph, and the avoidance of pain. It's an understanding that has God's goals as coterminous with our own. This is a default view, and it's very seductive. Unfortunately, it is not the theology that we find in the Bible. It is not what Jesus himself espouses. He espouses something very different, what we might call a theology of the cross. A theology of the cross says that God does not lead us around disappointment and pain or away from disappointment and pain, but God leads us into disappointment and pain. He rescues us not from these things, but through these things. One of my favorite African-American preachers says, God will not save you from the fire. He will save you in the fire. This is how God works. I was speaking to a man, a 75-year-old man in North Carolina this past week, a man I used to work with who had gotten fired from the job that we had. And he'd not only gotten fired once, he'd gotten fired four times. Four times. Um, and this last time, he'd, uh, he, he, he told me, he said, you know, getting fired for the fourth and final time from the organization that I love and the one to which I devoted my life, I thought it was the worst thing to ever happen. But David, I can look you in the eye and without fingers crossed and tell you it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was painful, it was disappointing, but without that fourth and final nail in the coffin, I would not have been put on the path that I'm currently on. A path that has led to the sobriety that eluded him for 35 years and to a newfound peace and kindness that he never in a million years thought would be his for the first time at age 75. You see, disappointment in his life was not a sign of God's absence, but a sign of God's presence. Indeed, you and I can know for certain that we are operating within a theology of glory if our faith feels like a fight against disappointment rather than a resource for accepting disappointment. Now, how else does Christ answer John? Well, it sort of has to play out. You see, like you and me who are sunk in our own disappointments, John cannot see the whole picture of what God is doing. His disappointment is in one sense a function of his limitations, and his limitations as a finite creature, person born in a certain time and place, who has access to only a partial amount of the truth. Despite appearances and despite how his own circumstances look, he simply cannot see the entire picture. He does not know what Jesus Christ is actually about because he does not know how the story will end. 
So much of our disappointment in life is a function of drawing conclusions prematurely. But we are in the middle of the story, not at the end. And maybe that's a comfort to you this morning in your midst of your own disappointments. You know, one of my favorite definitions of faith is from the theologian Adel Bastavros, the Egyptian, who said, who defines faith as patience with God. Faith is patience with God, and that's what we actually heard about in the reading from James. Okay, sounds great, but wait a second. Don't we actually know how the story ends with John? There's a whole thing about a head being cut off and served on a platter, Caravaggio painted it. It's gruesome. It was one of the most interesting things in the entire Bible to me when I was a young boy. John the Baptist's head on a platter. Wasn't he executed? Isn't that a horrible ending definitively? Well, only if you ignore what else Jesus Christ says in his uh, message back. You see, he doesn't just say, he doesn't just say that the lame walk or the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed or the blind receive their sight. He says something spectacular in there. He says that the dead are raised. The dead are raised. And who but he could say this? So to those imprisoned by disappointment and impatience, Jesus says to us this morning that there is indeed a way out, a way out for those who can see no way out. To those who are past hoping, Christ brings the promise of the resurrection, a time when even your most painful disappointment will be made right, a new beginning for those who cannot engineer a good or pleasant future. Because this is a theology not just of the cross, but of the resurrection. Because John hadn't failed. He hadn't failed at all. The judgment he had foretold did come. But the judgment that came was not a judgment rendered by Christ against a violent and doubting and impatient generation. It was a judgment rendered by a violent, doubting, impatient generation against Christ. This is the judgment of the crucifixion. This is the Son of Man taking on the sin of the world. This crowd who hung him on a cross, he who refused to retaliate, they killed like a criminal. This is the God who came not to obliterate sin, but to suffer it and to forgive it. After all, what greater disappointment could there be than the disappointment of the crucifixion? And yet that death, like our own, is merely prelude to resurrection, reconciliation, and new life. In Advent, we often use the words in the Eucharist, uh, uh, um, uh, the, the introduction to it, where we talk about the second coming of Christ, that he will come again in power and great triumph to judge 
the world. And because of that, that is why we may without shame or fear rejoice to behold his appearing. The judgment that has come will come again. But this time the judge will be Jesus Christ himself. And his judgment on you and on me is not that of disappointment, but of acceptance, forgiveness, and love. 